I want to welcome everyone to episode number 27 of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, a 50-year retrospective, the early years of the WWF, the WWF, and the WWE. Madison Square Garden, the mecca of professional wrestling, a building that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. We record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden. And to look back at all these shows, a man who went to every wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden for five years straight, starting at August 30th, 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Rizzi. John, how you doing, my friend? Tim, good to see you as always. How are you? It is a new year, my friend. It is a new year. It is. I mean, I thought it was a little late to say Happy New Year, but I was going to start off the same way. But yes, it is. It's a new year, and we're going back 50 years to 1974, which was a big, big year for me. Big, big year. Before we get into the show, uh, I know you're working on other podcasts. You had your Gibby podcast and your other wrestling podcasts. Uh, Let's just tell the audience how you're doing with those, because I know there's some new possibilities coming up for you. Uh, Yes. Uh, On the Gibby show, which uh, completed its run when he got hired by the New York Mets, Uh, so he's now their bench coach, so that show came to an end at the end of December. That was a great experience working with Gibby, and now he's with the Mets, so I am pivoting. We're still talking about keeping the Toronto Blue Jays podcast. We uh, should have uh, something confirmed on that within the next uh, less than 30 days. But we have a potential host who wants to do it. So that's kind of cool. And he has a big, big legacy with the Blue Jays and a dear friend of mine as well and Gibby's. So that'll be fun if we could put that together. Uh, But on the other side, the thing I'm most excited about is uh, launching uh, another one or two podcasts here. They are Mets related. And I can't talk about it officially as far as who's coming in to uh, co-host. Once the I's are dotted, the T's are crossed, we'll be able to make that announcement probably by uh, March the 1st. It would be uh, a very high profile historic Mets figure uh, who will co-host or actually it's going to be his show. And I'll be the same thing that I did with Gibby. I'll be there as the co-host. But I think this has the potential to be something very, very cool. And then another uh, legacy player, the New York Mets, also wants to do a show. And uh, we may be uh, launching his uh, towards the end of the summer. So uh, those things are making me extremely happy. On the Pro Wrestling Spotlight side, we'll be making an announcement there. We only have, uh, as the day that we're taping this, only two shows remaining from the original run. The original run ended uh, abruptly on January 20th, 1995. And then it's kind of like, all right, now we're 35 years ago that we launched Pro Wrestling Spotlight. So do you give it up because you went through the cycle or do you find a different way to capture that history? And I think we've made a different way to capture that history. And uh, by the time we tape our next show here, all those details will be finalized. I think people are going to be happy about it. And it keeps the run of the show continuing as we now rewind back to 1989 and even previous, the college shows, the one show I did with Napolitano back in 85. So, yeah, we're planning all of this stuff now. So I've turned into a full-time podcaster is what has happened. Ooh, I know I, I I love podcasting. I do uh, besides this podcast, I do my own podcast, um, and I'm re I'm revamping that as we speak. Also, it's it's a hard thing to do. Like everyone says, oh, I'm gonna do a podcast. Podcasts are great. It's hard. It's hard because it involves more than just you sitting in front of a microphone. Everyone just thinks you sit in front of a microphone, you talk, and it's over. 
that, you know, you put a show together. If you have a partner, you have to figure out when you're both going to do it. Then you got to edit it. Then you got to promote it. Then you got to put it out. Then by that time, you got to put another one out. So even though we only like do this show once a month, we both have other things going on in podcasting and it, it takes a lot. So I, I know how what you're talking, you're turning into a podcaster, which could be a very good thing, but also it's a lot of work. It's not so, it's well, not so easy. It's not something that I envisioned no. ever. Doing, uh, even in the last few years, it was kind of a hobby, but it's turned into uh, my living now. And the reason I know you can make a living from it, if you have a big enough audience, you could attract advertisers. I like the Gibby Show. Miller Lite was our title sponsor, spending a big amount of money with the Gibby Show. Tim Hortons, same thing. Uh, Sports Interaction, a betting company, same thing. And the new show with the Mets in the New York market with the guy that has agreed to do it, the high profile nature of what he is and because it's something that kind of never has been done before with a man of this stature in the history of the New York Mets, we know that will attract national advertisers to it. But you're right in saying the show's got to be researched every week. You got to, I, you know, I wrote the Gibby show. I researched the Gibby show like our good friend Richie does with this show. It, it doesn't happen overnight. You just can't turn a microphone on like you and I chatting. There's a lot of work that goes into it. And then you have to get that editing team and have that edited. And then you have to edit the videos for YouTube and all of that stuff I don't do. But um, it is now a full-time endeavor for me because I've given up looking for another job. I just can't get hired at 67. I just celebrated my 67th birthday a couple of days ago. And the last job I applied for, I thought I'd be a shoo-in for it, which was a director of admissions at a music institute that taught people the music business and recording and songwriting. And because of what I did in the music business, it was right here in Franklin. And I was like, this is me. This job, I know I can mentor kids and bring them in in admissions and, and do what the job entailed. And I didn't get the job. And it was right here in Franklin. So oh. I, after that happened and all the, you know, the dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of jobs I've applied for uh, over the last few years, uh, I said, you know what? I'm not doing it no more. Now, if, if I could do podcasting for three years until I'm 70, then that's my exit. Work till 70. And that's that's my plan now. That's, that, that sounds great. Uh, well, let, let's let's go. Let's take a step back right now. How about the Patreon for our audience? Yeah. How does how's the Patreon doing? Is it still running? What What's going up and what, what new things have you put on there? Yeah, I mean, there's always a lot on the Patreon. Every single week I put content up. I really just posted uh, some remarkable audio of uh, Art Barr uh, doing an interview right before he passed away. And then uh, Eddie Guerrero, huge interview that Evan Ginsberg and Eddie Goldman did back when uh, Art passed away. And Eddie was his tag team partner, came on their show and talked about it. So I just posted that up for patrons. I put, you know, additional photo sets up there. There's old vintage uh, WWWF audio from 1972, 73, 74, which has been uploaded most recently. And we're going to continue the Patreon, even though as we transition into this more of a rewind type of show, Patreon will continue. Uh, we'll add a couple of new features for those patrons that go back into the archives and kind of condense the shows instead of giving, uh, you know, the patrons, here's this week's show or last week's show. We're going to condense them into one file like every month they'll get a file with 
all the shows from that month from 1989 or 90 and make it more simplistic for them to look for it. So we're tweaking things here and there. And it's steady. I picked up probably five to 10 new members in the last couple of months. The ones that have been there stay. We'll see. I mean, the big test will be when the show, the last original Pro Wrestling Spotlight is reviewed and covered on a podcast. And then uh, there'll be a 30-day or 60-day lapse before we launch the new uh, Fresh Coat of Paint Rewind show. So we'll see how that happens, you know. But, uh, you know, this is not a, this is not an uh, endeavor. You know, I always hoped that we'd, uh, we'd make money from it. But it's just the reality is it's a niche, such a niche audience where when you look at the baseball stuff, that has true potential for that's where the income is going to be. This is more of being a historian, talking to you because you you love talking about this stuff from the garden years ago. So uh, I don't know. I'm optimistic about this year. We'll see where it goes. And I also want to tell people that another thing you're adding to the Patreon that I like a lot is a lot of times we used to go through a lot of your stuff and go, I'm just going to throw on eBay, you know, make some money off of eBay. Now you're going to take your stuff and the first choice you're going to go to is the Patreon. Let them see it first. Leave it up there. If it doesn't sell, then you go to eBay. But you get the first crack and you're going through some of your boxes and we've been seeing some of this stuff. It's pretty cool stuff. So if you're a collector out there, it's worth it even just for the five bucks to get in and just see what the stuff is early because you may find some really great deals. Yeah, yeah. We're going to go through this stuff and, and put some really cool stuff up there as well for patrons to get a chance to uh, add to their own collections uh, from my personal collection because I want to liquidate it all. I don't need any of it. All right. I still need my picture of Andre before you liquidate that, okay? Well, that's... That's going to you, man. Okay. It's, John it sent me a bunch of pictures a while ago, me and Richie, and he goes, tell me what you guys like. And I, I liked them all. I really did. But then I started thinking, like, which ones am I going to put up on a wall? Which ones am I going to, you know, I probably put up one. Which one do I want? And John has this great picture of Ken Patera. Uh, I love Olympics and I love wrestling. And Ken Patera was an Olympian. And Andre the Giant. And Andre is in full swing with his arm. So his arm's back and he's holding he's holding Patera with one arm. And you can see that fist coming. And it's just that anticipation because I can almost feel the energy in the garden that night. So uh, yeah. that's the one I want. And John, I'm sure you put other pictures up on your uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash John Rizzi. Check it out. You will not be disappointed. Let's get into today's show. Before we start to get into today's show, January 14th, 1974 at Madison Square Garden, we're going to jump a month ahead to February 4th, 1974. There will be no WWWF house show at Madison Square Garden in February. Why? Well, there's a new place in the New York market that they're going to bring wrestling to. It's 27 miles away from Madison Square Garden. We're talking about Nassau Veterans Memorial Coliseum, another 15,000-seat venue already in the New York Territory. It was a brand spanking new arena for wrestling uh, right in the middle of Nassau County, close to where I lived in Babylon. But, you know, the only detriment is that you couldn't take the Long Island Railroad or public transportation there. You'd have to drive. That's what I was going to ask you about, because now you have a venue on the island. You don't have to go into the garden anymore. Was it easier to go to the island show or the garden show? Was the Coliseum show easier or was Madison Square Garden easier for you? The garden always because you could jump on a train and shoot there. And I and I was uh, was 17 at the time. And even though I, I was licensed, I didn't have my own car at that at that point. I had to rely on my mom <laughs> to take me to that first show uh, at the Coliseum, that first wrestling show there, February 4th, 74. But uh, you talk about historic arenas back then when that place opened up. It did some really interesting events. Well, it started off so much going on. So much going on. Well, in 1972, the New York Islanders started playing hockey there, and that was the big thing, bringing a professional sports team. In 1973, Elvis Presley had four sold-out performances at Nassau Coliseum. And if you remember, if you're a wrestling historian, you remember Nassau Coliseum hosted leg number one of WrestleMania 
on April 7th, 1986. So it has a lot of a lot of meaning, this building. What Long Island basically was for a long time was just a suburb of New York. And now they were trying to make Long Island into something of its own. Yeah, I mean, this venue was big for Long Island at the time, not just of the events that you mentioned there, but of course, uh, concerts. And I, I saw Frank Sinatra there, which uh, was amazing. And I saw Journey there. And uh, my old client, Patty Loveless, played there. So I, I got to see her play the Nassau Coliseum. Billy Joe multiple times at the Nassau Coliseum. And uh, I think I even went to the closed circuit. I did go to the closed circuit event, and it was at the Coliseum of Evil Knievel. Uh, trying to jump that Snake Mountain deal that Vince McMahon actually funded. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> that was closed circuit, that debacle that took place. So I was there in the audience watching it on closed circuit. Okay, let's go back and explain to everybody. Closed circuit television is... Uh, they started off with cable a little, but cable wasn't really as big as closed circuit. They didn't understand how to do pay-per-views back in the day. So what they would do is do these closed circuit things. So this closed circuit thing would be at an arena like Nassau Coliseum or at a club somewhere where they can make money for this. So they open up these big venues to watch these things. Muhammad Ali did a lot of those matches. I'm not sure. I think it was closed circuit for Ali Anoki in Japan was closed circuit. So it was. E- Evil Knievel, uh, Evil Knievel was, was, uh, he was a daredevil, and he was huge in the 70s. He was bigger than anything. And I remember growing up, and every it seemed like every year he'd be doing something different. He he jumped over Caesar's Palace, the fountains. That was a huge thing. And you got to remember, the motorcycles back then were heavy. They were very heavy bikes. And then he did, uh, was it there, then the 12 London buses, and then Snake River Canyon with his rocket ship. Plus, he had a toy yeah. the whole time, which everyone wanted. If you were a kid in, yeah. seven, in the 70s, you wanted that evil Knievel. You wanted the motorcycle. You wanted the rocket yep. ship. So you yep. saw at NASA Coliseum, you went, for, you went to see him jump the Snake River Canyon, which was a mess. But how was it, how was it seeing Closed Circuit? It was a mess, and it was, uh, he only made it like halfway. Or, uh, and then the, you know, the parachute came out, and the rocket went into the little river down below, and that was the end of that. But it, was a, it, was a, <laughs> it, it wasn't worth your money for sure. Um, but uh, this particular show, I mean, February, before we get to covering the Garden Show, yeah. January 14th, uh, I remember it vividly because my mom had to drive me, okay, first and foremost. So I take my mom to the first wrestling show at Nassau Coliseum. And there was no, like, press passes or anything. I bought a ticket, bought one for my mom. And I was like, well, I got to get backstage somehow. So I just, you know, put my big balls on, so to speak. I put my mom in a seat near the dressing room entrance, and I just walked backstage, saw Freddie Blassie, you know, said hello to him, took some pictures. Then I meet Nikolai Volkov. got to uh, chat with him a bit. And uh, I said I was there with my mom. And he goes, oh, my wife is here. Nikolai's wife, Lynn, was there, who was a school teacher. And she wound up sitting with my mom the whole night uh, watching the show. Those were my memories. And, of course, there was no, like, big security. And I would, I was, I went right up to Ringstar to start shooting. And, and uh, I got hit in the back of the head with an egg. <laughs> so I that <laughs> as well. Uh, so that, those were my memories from that first show at, at Nassau College. Coliseum, February 4th, 74. Who was wrestling when you got hit by the egg? Um, it, I think it was it was Jonathan, Don Leo Jonathan. I think it was Don Leo Jonathan and his Gorilla Monsoon, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, that's hysterical. 
And, and the big event that night uh, was the World Heavyweight Championship at Nassau Coliseum for the very first time. Bruno San Martino pinned Stan Stasiak. Yeah, that was a rematch from the December 10th night when Bruno won the title at the Garden. So it was it was, it was was a good show, and uh, I, I don't know, how did, that, did this become a monthly thing, a bi-monthly thing? When were they starting to do uh, house shows at Nassau Coliseum? Because the attendance wasn't really that uh, vibrant there. Uh, they didn't run every single month there. I mean, so they went to the Coliseum, I believe, in that first year, maybe three times, maybe four times. And it was never really a place where it was like every single month. Yeah, I can see why it's so close to Madison Square Garden. You have it set up. You're making your money. People coming in for that. All right, let's go today's show. 50 years ago, the WWWF New York City Madison Square Garden Monday night, January 14th, 1974. Bell time is 830. Uh, sellout crowd of 22,147. And let's go to match number one. Butchard Brannigan defeated Mike Pappas in 11 minutes, 15 seconds. And there you go. That attendance got bumped up right to a sellout when Bruno comes in his first title defense. And that first match, uh, Butcher Brannigan uh, against Mike Pappas, uh, uh, you know, good opener. Uh, Brannigan, uh, his real name, Joe Nova, and he used to work as Joe Nova earlier on in the WWF uh, as kind of a jobber. And then he kind of went away for a bit, came back with this Irish tough guy persona, and they renamed him Butcher Brannigan. He started winning uh, more matches. Uh, he also used the name The Grappler for a time. He debuted in 1970, so he was a young, big guy with a lot of potential. Uh, his first Garden appearance was uh, March 13, 72, and he used the name Joe Nova on that show. Mike uh, Pappas, as mentioned here before, you know, the Flying Greek, he was a popular guy, smaller guy. Uh, I had a recent documentary about him, which is available on YouTube. Definitely worth watching. But a good opener, solid opener for uh, Butcher uh, winning uh, that match against Pappas. Let's go to match number two. Otto Von Heller defeated Tony Alamori in nine minutes, 55 seconds. Yeah, Otto Von Heller kind of using that uh, German Nazi gimmick coming in, uh, defeating Tony Altamore. Uh, Tony, of course, uh, uh, worked in the front office, was part of the Sicilians with Lou Albano years previously to that. Uh, Von Heller, his real name, Michael Conrad Hull, his first appearance at the Garden, and uh, he uh, was there five additional times and will end up losing four losses and one time limit draw. But in this particular match, he went over Al Tamori. I think they were going to try to push Von Heller a little bit, uh, but he never really caught on getting enough heat from the crowd and just never was elevated. They just kind of dropped the fact that they were going to push him big time, and that never materialized. Let's go on to match number three. We call him the killer because he's a killer. Jose Gonzalez and Manuel Soto defeated Pancho Valdez and Joe Turco in the best of two out of three falls match in 18 minutes, 40 seconds. Uh, this just seems like a, like a TV match at best. Not even a TV match, Tim. I mean, it was two out of three falls. A TV match would be four or five minutes and you'd be <laughs> in and out. So that was kind of like, why is this two out of three falls? I didn't mind Turco and Valdez teaming with each other because they were both very charismatic. They both were very animated. Joe Turco, of course, the guy I eventually was my tag team partner in that one infamous night. Pancho Valdez, they kind of had a similar look in a way, wild men. And then Gonzalez... Um, uh, you know, we all we've spoken about him, and the less I could say about him, the better. And Manuel Soto, uh, but you know, a tag team match that was way too long at 18 minutes 40 seconds should have been one fall, that should have been it. Uh, but of course, they had to uh, give us a little. Yeah, to torture us a little bit before we got to the good stuff. And speaking of torture, here's a little more torture. Match number four: yeah. Jay Strongbow 
defeated Mr. Fuji by disqualification after nine minutes, 41 seconds. You know, typical Fuji strong roll match. They wrestled hundreds of freaking times over the years. Uh, but the DQ was a little surprising. I guess Fuji didn't want to do the job. Uh, so uh, he gets the DQ, Strongbow wins, people are happy, in and out, let's get out of here, let's go to the next one. <laughs> and let's go to the next one, and this is a surprising next one, this is huge, match number five, this is huge, Nikolai Volkov, in his first appearance at Madison Square Garden, defeated Gorilla Monsoon in four minutes. Yeah, it was his first uh, match at the Garden since uh, he became Nikolai Volkov, and he was previously known as Beppo Mongo, a part of the World Tag Team Champions. Mongo, uh, Beppo, and Guido uh, were their names, and they were one of the they were one of my favorite tag teams in the in the '60s, in the mid to late '60s. And when uh, Volkov came in, of course, uh, managed by Fred Blassie, and that's what Blassie did. He, he kind of like scaled everything back uh, as far as his in-ring wrestling became. That manager, Fred, had tipped me off that he was coming in for a long period of time in the WWF. And lo and behold, he makes his debut as a manager at the Garden on this show. And Volkov uh, and Blassie worked very well together. And Volkov, what a storied history this guy had, Tim. Beppo Mongo, he was just, a, he looked like a kid when he was Beppo Mongo, but I never seen anybody as big as him. The barrel chest, the bald head when he was Beppo. I mean, with the little string coming out of the top of the head. Uh, amazing work, a, just a great brawler. Uh, he looked much better with hair on his head. And, uh, but, you know, he had a great uh, great career. He was executioner number three. He was trained by Stu Hart up in Canada. And uh, he actually met uh, Guido Mongo, whose real name was Newton Tatry, in Calgary, working for Stu Hart. Uh, the Mongols won that WWF Tag Team Championship, beating Victor Rivera and Tony Marino, January 15th, 1970. Uh, so they had the title, and I believe they also may have had a, a little bit of a title run uh, in the mid to late 60s, which I'm I'm not 100% sure of. In 1974, he joined the AWA as Boris Brezhnikov, managed by Bobby the Brain Heenan. What a great pairing that was. He worked over in New Japan Wrestling from 77 to 83. He worked for Bill Watts in 83. Uh, and then in 84 to 87, comes back to the WWF. And of course, this time managed by Blassie. 1987 to 1990, he teamed with Boris Zukov, real name James Harrell, as the Bolsheviks. And then he had a little small little babyface run. Uh, 90 to 91, and then he just started working the independents, uh, 91 to 94. He had a long, long storied history, even did ECW work, uh, 92 to 93, and then he uh, goes back to the WWF in 1995, gets inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2005, very well-deserved and very well-known for him being frugal. Didn't like to spend a penny. You know, Don Liable had uh, roomed with him on some uh, Killer Kowalski shows and said that, all, you know, he would wash his clothes in the sink in the bathroom. <laughs> you know, and he wore the same jacket for years and oh, years, years and years. Yeah, that, that jacket was years. so old. It looked like, you know, you see the immigrant jackets. When I see by, by the immigrant jackets, it's the jacket that my great-grandfathers had that were passed down from, like, your older brother to younger brother to your cousin, your cousin back to you, you know, things like that. And it always looked like it was never really made for him. It was also shorter. Mm -hmm. But he wore that thing for years. Years later, he wore that thing. I, I remember seeing him that for – and then he wore yeah. that little cap, too. Uh, it was, yep. 
Well, the cap, the jacket he used to wear, even like I, I, I was at a couple of, you know, uh, parties at private homes and, and he was there and wear the same jacket. Uh, I, I mean, I always noticed his polyester pants. I mean, he wear these plaid polyester pants and and, you know, like a wrinkled shirt, um, you know, definitely didn't look like somebody that was making money in the wrestling business or in any business. But the nicest guy. The nicest guy, uh, one of the biggest honors of my career was to have him at Weekend of Champions. Uh, he was there in the 92, at the 92 convention, just knowing him for all the years, having him on the radio show, booking him on a couple of shows uh, independently. But just, uh, just a nice guy, great guy, and uh, I would have to say one of those people uh, today that you kind of miss more than others because you know what a great person he was. Uh, we're going to play a clip here. I found a clip on YouTube from one of his Weekend of Champion appearances. I think this is Weekend of Champions 3, and he actually talks about how long he's known you. John Ari is a very good fellow, and I know John for a long time. Matter of fact, I know uh, John, he was just a little kid. He was uh, president of Freddie Blessy uh, fan club. At that time, Fred Blessy was my manager. That's when I met John. You know, I remember him at uh, Weekend of Champions 3, and he was just a nice guy. He was a nice guy. Yeah. And this is compared to all the wrestlers you've had. And you've had some really great people, but also some people that you want to meet them, and then you realize like afterwards you didn't want to meet them, if you know what I'm saying. Oh, absolutely. There was a lot of that. But uh, this is a guy that you wanted. Once you met him, you were like, boy. Can't say nothing bad about him. He became a fan of his. I, I was like, oh, okay, you know, Nikolai Volko. I just remember him from WrestleMania 1, beating my favorite tag team at the time, Barry Windham, Mike Rotundo, for the tag team championship, using that came by Freddie Blassie. I remember that like, like it was yesterday. So I wasn't like, eh, I didn't really care about beating Matt. Yeah, it was nice to meet you and all. But when you started talking to him, and he was just the sweetest guy, always thanking me and thanking everybody around him, just good people, good people. So uh, he is he is missed. Let's go on to match number six, WWF world champion Bruno Sammartino pinned Don Leo Jonathan in 17 minutes, 44 seconds. Yeah, I love uh, hearing that again, the WWF world heavyweight wrestling champion Bruno San Martino making his first title defense and it was so exciting to see him jog into the ring with Skolin wearing that belt and of course Don Leo that was kind of a little bit of a well Don Leo also one of my top 10 favorites of all time going in with the uh, Grand Wizard of Wrestling but I was kind of like I was looking forward to the match knowing that Don Leo was wasn't going to win Bruno of course got the uh, victory and it was a you know it was one of those uh, one shot deals but it was it was exciting and just to see the crowd react when uh, Bruno came into the ring and the match was exciting you know Don Leo was just as for a big man very agile and uh, I do have uh, I actually had brought my 8mm camera there, so I do have some footage of this match. Not a lot, but I do have some footage of the match uh, that I could look for and put up there for patrons as well. Uh, but six months earlier to Garden, on June 4th, 73, uh, Don Leo had lost to Pedro Morales in 10 minutes and 25 seconds in a quote-unquote Texas death match. That wasn't. Uh, but it was good to see it. Great main event. Seeing Bruno and Jonathan in the ring together was uh, a thrill for me. That's awesome. Uh, let's go to match number seven. WWWF Tag Team Champions Dean Ho and Tony Gurria defeated Larry Henning and Mike McCord in the best out of two out of three falls match in 18 minutes, 20 seconds. Yeah, this one made more sense uh, for a two out of three fall match, and it was about the same time as the one that we talked about previously from this card. 
um, uh, you know, and, and and Ho and Gurria were really popular tag team champions, really, really popular tag team champions. Uh, regarding I and Mike McCord, he also uh, was famously known as Austin Idol. He wrestled under a mask as a super Texan, teaming up with Dusty Rhodes. He was trained by the Grams, Mike and Eddie, made his debut in 72, retired in 98. Uh, he was sitting in the front seat of a, of the Cessna 192, uh, and it really was a miracle. Uh, that airplane crashed piloted by Buddy Colt uh, with Bobby Shane and uh, Playboy Gary Hart in the backseat of that. McCord suffered two broken ankles. Uh, Hart and Colt was seriously injured uh, but survived. But Bobby Shane, who was really an up-and-coming star in the business, unfortunately died in that plane crash, and Gary Hart never took another bump after that airplane crash after returning as a manager. And McCord was out of action for over a year, but uh, uh, he did come back, and he did uh, really excel in the wrestling business. And uh, I always thought uh, in the WWF that he'd get a bigger push because he was a big barrel-chested brute, another one. Uh, but his uh, claim, uh, his fame, rather, uh, came uh, really after he left uh, WWF. That plane crash reminds me a lot about the plane crash that Ric Flair was in. And Ric Similar. F Ric Flair changed his whole body type, just like Mike McCord did, turned into Austin Idol after that. Exactly. That is kind of a scary coincidence, isn't it? If you saw the pictures of Ric Flair before the plane crash, he was a big wrestling guy. Afterwards, changed his hair, changed his whole body, just like Mike McCord did becoming Austin Idol. Changed his hair to blonde and changed his body style. He wasn't, he was a big guy still, but he was more lean. And, and yes. same thing with Flair, more lean. Yeah, definitely uh, more more of a cardio type of worker rather than just like this big brute bodybuilder type. Let's go on to match number eight. Pedro Morales defeats Stan Stasiak in 14 minutes, 45 seconds. Pedro finally gets the win and his revenge for his loss in Philly of the title. Exactly right. They needed to uh, show the fans that Morales can beat Stasiak. And uh, Stasiak was a guy that pinned him in Philadelphia on December 1st, uh, costing him the title. So um, it was it was kind of a, a interesting way on the position of the match on the show it was the last one of the night. But Morales did defeat Stasiak, uh, getting his revenge after uh, Stasiak beat him the month before. Uh, Stasiak stayed around for a little bit longer. He's really jobbing out for the next couple of months before he leaves for another territory. You know, he should have. Stayed there long. He could have been a, a great second-tier guy and, and could have been uh, a little bit more of a, a prominent figure, but he decided to, you know, that's it, I'm leaving, going to other... He was very big in the Northwest Territory, uh, so he went home, and really, to start working and working other territories. Uh, but uh, overall, you know, solid worker, and we have not seen the last of Stan the Man Stasiak as he would return uh, down the road sometime. All right, John, what do you think about this card? Uh, I'm looking at this is was maybe a two-match card at the best. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. Uh, but it was exciting because it was a sellout. Fans were stoked to see Bruno uh, as the champion, making his first title defense. Morales gets his revenge. Uh, you have the tag team champions on there as well. So it's a really it was a, it was okay. It wasn't a spectacular show. It was a solid show. But I still give it not two thumbs up. I'll give it. Thumb and a half, uh, almost two stars. Almost two stars. Okay, I, I, I hear you on that. Well, not two stars, but two thumbs up. 
All right. Uh, star star wise, Tim, I'd give it a three out of five. How's that? Yeah, it it was. It, it, I think what you know, it's kind of like when you go see um, a concert and it has like a lot of okay bands on it, but when you see that one great band, which would be in this case Bruno, it kind of wipes everything else away. Yeah. Kind of like okay, who yeah. cares about that? I don't care about that. I got to see Bruno, and then ending it with Pedro getting his comeuppance, as they say, and now he has some heat on him, so now Pedro can come back, and now they can work Pedro into other things is really nice. Our next match is March 4th. There's going to be no matches at the Garden in February. March 4th, 1974, headlining by our man, Nikolai Volkov, getting his crack at Bruno's World Heavyweight title. Yeah, I mean, they pushed Volkov really fast, really big. That was like a pretty quick time to get the title shot right off the bat, uh, but he does, and he's got the uh, added addition of Classy Freddie Blassie at a side. So that show in March 4th, 1974. Can't wait to check that out with you on our next episode. Once again, we want to do a shout out to Scott Teal and Crowbar Press. Yes, indeed. Uh, if you really want a, a very thorough history of wrestling at Madison Square Garden, uh, just go to uh, crowbarpress.com and check out Wrestling in the Garden, The Battle for New York, Work, Shoots, and Double Crosses, with a very comprehensive show-by-show listing that takes you not just months, not just over years, not just over decades, but even over a century. Go pick it up at crowbarpress.com. And thanks to Scott Teal for that. And as always, I want to thank Richie Garcia. I mean, you know, what research Richie does. And he loves this stuff. He loves digging back into the history of the garden and everything else wrestling-wise. And I still really am so grateful to have him and you doing this and how far back we go, the three of us. You knew Richie since the 80s. I've known you since 91. Yeah. And we started working together. I met Richie at your second convention, and we've been Mm -hmm. very close friends ever since. Um, I, I love visiting him and his wife, and they visited me before. It's we, they, He's family. He's family like yourself. So it's, it's so nice that we're all three of us get to work together on a project that we all love. Yeah. And like, like we talked about earlier, you know, like there's a very niche audience out there because this is a historical podcast of Wrestling at the Garden. Uh, there's so many other podcasts of wrestling out there, and they're all talking about what's going on in AEW, the WWE, over in Japan, all these other factions. And, and it's great, and they do a great job, but this isn't that kind of podcast. This is a kind of podcast that is just go month by month the history of the garden and hopefully in you know there are we have a very loyal fan base and we love them so much because we get the great feedback from people they're enjoying the show and they take their time listening to it they take their time listening to it so once we release one show we'll get so many but every every day that passes we get more to that first show and more to the second so it's constantly growing so we always want to thank you for that and thanks for being part of that uh, with John and Richie and myself we, we can't tell you how much we appreciate it this being uh, 2024 right now uh, hopefully we can bring you some more great shows this year I agree I mean it's going to be uh, you know 1974 was a pretty big year Lots of things uh, happening in wrestling. Lots of great title defenses by Bruno San Martino. A very exciting year. And for me, 74 is just really the, this was the kickoff of the year I graduated from high school. The year that I won Fan Club of the Year at the Wrestling Fans International Association annual uh, meeting in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, it was also uh, the year that I took my very first plane trip and went to the 22-man Battle Royal in Los Angeles. And it was the year I got my first paid article in uh, Tommy D's Big Book of Wrestling, and it was a story about Freddie Blassie managing Nikolai Volkov, ironically, uh, with photographs from the March 4th show that we'll be covering next episode. So yeah, it was a big transitional year for me. It was a lot of stuff 
going on. We're looking forward to it. And also, Carrie is coming back on the show. We love having Carrie on the show. And Carrie, you're listening right now. Get ready because we're going to bring you up for a couple more shows coming up this year. We're going to have a great time together. Yeah, and uh, also, um, I'm going to be uh, asking Evan Ginsberg to come on the show from Wrestling Then and Now. Ooh, uh, nice. Because, yeah, because Evan is actually doing uh, my Pro Wrestling Spotlight uh, taping this coming week. Um, and that is to cover uh, the Eddie Guerrero interview we did about Art Bar's past. But Evan went to his first Madison Square Garden show in 1974. So uh, he remembers it well. And I believe it was the June 74 show. So we'll bring him on to kind of reminisce his first time at Madison Square Garden and getting involved with that. And of course, as you said, Carrie, always welcome. We'll be bringing him back on and uh, maybe some other surprises this year, Tim. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Is there anything else, John? No, no. I just want to appreciate it. Thank you guys very much. Thank everybody. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate it. Well, thank you, John. For John Rizzi and Richie Garcia, I'm Tim Putre. We'll see you next time. <laughs> 